What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Get the Castle Game with K and K. So today, Crystal's not here in the intro, but she was here on the podcast. So I'm left all by my lonesome self. But anyways, today I'm excited. Um, have a really cool guest on, Aaron Wags um, from Wags Capital. I met Aaron through uh, what do you know, Avengers Mastermind. Um, as I keep saying, so many rad, cool people there that I get to meet. They get to learn from, um, invest with, and so Aaron is, uh, you know, he's gonna talk about a story. But Aaron just is like, he's just kind of a badass. Dude. The guy's got seven kids, which I literally, I have two, and I can barely even function with two. So I'm not even seven. Um, he's a real estate guy. He's um, big on real estate. That's how he got started, and his story. You gotta listen to this. Like, I don't even know this about him, but the story is absolutely like crazy. Uh, Monty's sitting here because I'm like replaying in my head. The story is crazy, so you have to listen to this one just for the story. The beginning is insane, so get ready. Um, talk about being hungry, motivated, wanting more out of life, not gonna give up, not gonna take no for an answer, like not depending on anybody. Like that is Aaron Wags, and one of his core things he always talks about is whatever it takes I will do whatever it takes um, and that is his motto that's his mindset um, but anyways he's crushing it out there in Utah he's syndicator he's doing funds he's flipped tons of properties before the other thing that's cool about Aaron that um, I learned a lot about is not only is he super passionate about real estate the taxes you know, he, the whole game in and out, that's why he buys it, the cash flow, the appreciation, the tax flow, the debt you can get on all that stuff. Um, but the other thing is, is that Aaron has built you know, his own brand, but he's also built other brands. And so he's launching, he's I think owns over a hundred restaurants, some brands that you might know of. He's like partners in, um, uh, no, come on Monty, give me some here. Everball. Um, Axia Partners, and then he's got uh, Crumbles, the cookie place. So he has over 100 restaurants, but one of the things is is that he was watching people raise money, invest in restaurants, and what he realized the food and beverage space is that a lot of people fail, but the people that don't fail, like crush it, like literally crush it. Like have you ever driven by like a restaurant or like a bar or a club or something, and you're like, dude, why do they have a line out the door, but the guy next door is not, nobody's in there. There, there is a reason. It's, it's from, it's from the mindset. It's from the menu. It's from the product. It's from the service. It's the whole thing. So he has become a master on building these brands, whether it's restaurants or this, or taking an existing brand and blowing it up. So the cool thing about that, there's a lot of money in that, whether it's the cash flow or the upside or the exit. So Wags is story's awesome. I'm super excited for you guys to hear it. I'm super stoked and grateful that he had spent the time to come on and talk to us and um, obviously to call him a buddy and get to keep spending more and more time with these guys, all the Avengers. And like I said, they're like a wealth of knowledge and their Rolodex is wide and long and like they're nothing but like inspirational and you guys will get a lot of nuggets out of this one. So without further ado, Aaron Wags. Aaron, thanks for coming on today, a.k.a. Wags, because that's what we're going to call you all day, guys. So Aaron Wags in the house. Thanks for joining us, brother. Yeah, man. Happy to be here. Cool. So I want to jump in. First of all, I want to say that, Crystal, I don't know if you know, but they have seven kids. 
That's a lot of babies. <laughs> My husband told me after two, if we, if we want to stay married, we're stopping here. <laughs> it might've been good advice, man. I'll tell you what, that many kids, it definitely takes a toll on, you know, time together and, you know, the relationship. And I mean, you definitely become very close as partners because you got to keep, you know, seven little souls alive every day and, you know, just hope they, at the end of the day, they have a pulse, but like, realistically it does it, it's it's tough on it's tough on marriages it's tough on relationships and um but at the same time just brings so much joy right because just like you guys you know what you feel about your two children and everything that the experiences you have it's like well multiply it by three yeah our kids are amazing and that's why it was hard for me because i'm like oh i love like being pregnant was fun and the newborn phase, oh my gosh, it's the best. So I could see why you keep having kids too. <laughs> well, it's funny. I always say like my wife would have had more, but I was just like done like at six and, you know, she talked me into another one. I was like, okay, cool. And I mean, I act like that was just a super thought out decision. But the, I mean, the truth is, is like, if I wouldn't have got snipped, we'd probably just keep having kids because she's in complete control. Like I love making them. She likes raising them. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's a good quote. Uh, I like making them. She likes raising them. That's, That's right. awesome. Yeah. I, think you I love that. that. That's awesome. So if we could just back up a little bit, obviously, Wags, I've heard your story, but for anybody who doesn't know, you can just kind of back up and give us like an intro on like how you got here today when we're talking and kind of everything going on. Yeah, sure, man. So my story, um, essentially, I grew up in, in Canada. I was born and raised in Canada. Um, my family moved around a ton when I was a kid. My parents were both uh, entrepreneurs. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. And um, I went to like seven, I think seven different elementaries as a child and um, ended up in a place called Lethbridge, Alberta, where I went to high school. My, uh, my family, I talk about my parents being entrepreneurs. They they were great ideas people. They weren't very successful in their execution. And so almost every business they ever started failed very quickly. And so I got to see both sides of that as a kid. And as a kid, you don't really know, you know, how to, how to glean lessons from that. But looking back, it's, it's very, very clear on, you know, what they were good at and what they were not good at. Right. And so throughout my life, you know, had, uh, we had five kids in our family and when my parents divorced, uh, when I was 15 years old, me and my brother, we ended up moving out on our own with my dad. And he took a job in a, in a city that was about three hours away. And at first he was just going to be there throughout the week and then come back on the weekends. And the, the job got very demanding and he ended up having to stay at a week at a time, two weeks. And pretty soon we were just, you know, barely seeing him maybe once a month. And so me and my 13 year old brother pretty much were raising ourselves. And at that point, um, because I was so busy with sports and my mom had my little sister. I just felt like it was maybe best at that point for like my brother to live with my mom. And so I ended up moving out on my own and, um, kind of taking care of myself. And at that point, uh, you just kind of had to grow up very quickly. And I knew at that point that I wanted more out of life. I wanted more for, for myself. I had big goals. I really didn't know how to get there because neither of my parents made it past the eighth grade. And, and so, but I knew, I knew that I could sell, you know, I saw my dad do that. He took me to, to conventions and exhibit exhibitions when I was a kid and taught me how to sell to people. And, um, and so I knew that for me, I wanted to, I wanted to come to America and, 
really, if I didn't figure out a way to come to America and go to school, I was going to end up pumping or, or working in the oil fields in Northern Alberta as like a, you know, a rig pick. And so I, uh, I love sports at that point, sports were everything. They were my entire life. And I got pretty good at football. And so I started um, marketing myself, but I really didn't know what to do to get a scholarship in the United States because in Canada, football is really not that big. It's, it's a hockey, it's a hockey country. Right. And so um, there was nobody from my province at that time, which is like a, a Canadian version of a state. There was nobody from my province that had ever gone on a division one football scholarship to the United States before. And so I went to this bookstore called chapters books. And I, I actually got this book called how to market your student athlete. And I bought it and I started re I read it cover to cover as quickly as I could. And it, it walked you through like step-by-step step how to, you know, create these letters that you mail to all the colleges and universities and the athletic departments and what the dates were that you had to, you know, send film, highlight films, follow up, dead periods, all that kind of stuff. So I just like used it as a template. I copy and pasted the whole thing, wrote it all out. And I started sending all these letters. And back then, I mean, this is like, you know, 1998, 99. Um, we didn't have DVDs or digital or computers. So like I had VHS. So I got from, from the pawn shop, I got an extra VHS machine and I put them beside each other and I would take my highlight film and, or sorry, my game tape and put the other, the other tape in here. And I would just do, you know, reverse record, reverse record, fast forward record. And I created my own highlight film. And then um, I, I, I sent it to this guy. I actually took it to the local news station in my city um, it was the only person I knew that like could actually do any editing. And I didn't even know the guy I just walked in and asked him like, Hey, here's my highlight film. Could you put some like cool, like beastie boys music in it, you know, and, <laughs> you know, put like my stats, how, how big and how fast I am and stuff like make it look cool. Um, and so he did it for me. I sent it out to like 20 universities and then I just started calling them. You know, the book gave me at the back of the book, it gave me all the athletic department coaches names and direct um, office numbers. And so I just started calling him like every day. And what I didn't know and what the book doesn't tell you is that, like, you can't just call a coach's office and get the coach. You're not going to get the head coach, <laughs> the coordinator, the linebacker coach. You're not going to get those guys that they have gatekeepers. There's going to be, you know, these receptionists like, oh, sorry, let me take a message. So I leave like 20 messages for each one of them. They never call me back, obviously, because there's thousands of kids now that I understand this calling and trying to solicit themselves. Now there's recruiting services and everything else. But back when I was doing it, like I was just I didn't know any other way. My coach didn't know what he was doing. So I was just following the book. Well, I realized very quickly I wasn't going to get through to the coaches. And so I had to, like, you know, figure out some tactics and really like sell myself. So I started calling. And when the receptionist would answer, I would just tell her, hey, look, I was just on a call with Coach Doba and we got, you know, we got cut off, dropped the call. Can you just patch me through? And she'd be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Boom. Patch me right through to his office, you know. And he'd be like, hey, this is Coach Doba. And I'm like, hey, hallelujah. I'm talking to the coach. Awesome. Hey, I, I'm, I'm this kid from Canada. Nobody knows about me. But I think I'm really good at football. I sent you my highlight film. Can you please watch it? I promise it won't be worth your it'll be worth your time. And um, I had done that a few times and they, you know, take my name message. But this coach in particular, Coach Dova, he was the defensive coordinator at Washington State University. He actually said, yeah, man, what's your name? Hold on a sec. He walked out, 
walked to, I could hear him in the background screaming down the hallway, hey, find me this kid's tape. He's from Canada, Aaron Wagner, you know? And he brought the tape in, he plugged it in, and he was looking at it, he's watching it, and I could, I could hear him. He was just like, ooh, ah. And I'd watched this film like 300 times, right? So like, I knew what plays he was looking at when he was saying like, ah, I just rocked that good. Oh, yeah, you know? And so it was getting me excited. Well, into the film, he said, dude, you're, you're a pretty good player, kid. Um, we'd love to have you come down on a trip and I'll come fly up there and meet your family. And so he came up and um, watched, watched me play basketball. It was basketball season at the time. And I came on a trip. And as soon as I got one scholarship offer from them, I got 20 from everybody else, right? Because that's just the wow. way the world works. Everybody wants what somebody else wants. And so I learned to leverage that as well. And that, that, was a, that was a skill that I learned that's been you know, really valuable in business. But I, I got the scholarship offer um, because they were the first pe people that offered me a scholarship. I felt an extreme amount of loyalty to them. And so being from Canada, I didn't really know what the good schools were. Well, at the time, Washington State was actually the last. It was the shittiest school in the entire Pac-10 conference. And I didn't know that, but I was like, dude, these coaches were awesome. They offered me the first scholarship. I'm going there. Well, turns out like, you know, I could have gone to Miami or USC and all these other schools that were far better, but I didn't know anything about those schools because I didn't even watch college football. Right. So I go to the school and um, Washington State. It turned out great because we won the Pac-10 championship that year. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, I started as a true freshman. But the cool thing was, is that when I came to the U.S., I really had no way um, to actually get there. And because they told me I had a scholarship, they sent me a scholarship offer and the paperwork that I signed, uh, letter of intent. And so I packed up my backpack. I was 17 years old. I put everything I could in my backpack and I got on my 1984 50 cc Raz scooter. And I drove <laughs> all the way from Canada to Washington, across the border, the Rockies, the cold. I was freezing my ass off the whole way. And I'm 17 years old and I drove through it. And when I showed up on campus, I was like, I walked into the coach's office. I'm like, I'm here. I'm ready to start training. You know, it was a month before fall camp started, but I, I thought, Hey, if I get there early, I can work out and I'll be able to, you know, earn my spot. And they were like, cool. Um, where you stand? And I'm like, I don't know. Like you guys said, I had room and board as part of my scholarship. And they're like, uh, yeah, but that doesn't start till, till fall, like September. And this is like, August one or something. And so I'm like, well, crap, I don't know what I can do. And I'm not legal to, to work in the United States because I'm, a, I'm a, on a, I, my student visa hasn't even started yet. I'm essentially illegal there. And so I was like, well, I got to figure this out. So I just started sleeping in the locker room and uh, we'd have these early morning workouts where the whole team would come in, all the veterans, and they'd come in at like 6 a.m. And I was always the first person in the locker room. And everybody was like, Oh hell, this this like freshman man, he's really like, <laughs> like I slept here. here. But they had no idea. I was sleeping in the showers, and when I heard people come, I just pop up and act like I was, you know, the first dude there ready to go. <laughs> and so uh, you know, I, I I ended up earning a spot and a lot of respect of some of the the older players and started as a true freshman and um ended up transferring to to Brigham Young University, played there a few years, um, went to the NFL, went back up and played in the CFL. And after that, I just transitioned full-time into my business, started a family. And that's for the last 10, 12 years, I've just been going full-time at building an empire. So that's, 
that's kind of the story, man. And it's been fun. I've learned a lot along the way. And honestly, I look back now and I really feel like, you know, people talk about the American dream, but a lot of people in the U.S., they actually take it for granted. They don't realize how much opportunity this country provides. And for me, I know exactly what it is. I feel like I'm living the exact American dream and what people want to come to this country for. That is such an awesome story. I feel like there you went through so many unknowns and kind of just took leaps and figured it out along the way. I feel like too, one of the things that we see, which is kind of the cliche, I guess, of professional athletes is that they're not, you know, thinking they're not business minded that they spend all their money. And then, you know, when they get out of the NFL, they kind of go broke pretty quick. Um, what do you think? I mean, it sounds like you've had so many experiences along the way, but what do you kind of, what kind of sparked you to kind get involved in business and to start thinking like a business person after being a professional athlete? Well, I think, I mean, for me, honestly, it just came supernatural because, you know, the way you're raised, you guys have children, you know, and your kids come into this world. And if you tell them the sky's purple, they believe it's purple, right? And my parents, they just, that's what they did. They hustled. They always were starting businesses and trying, trying to just win in life. And honestly, I had no example of somebody to go, to university, get an education, you know, get a job. My parents were always just trying to think of a way to get things going, right? And so that's just honestly what I always thought I would end up having to do. And what I didn't realize was that while I was still in college, um, that I would get started that early, right? When I was when I was a junior in college, I started in real estate, and I talked one of my buddy's dads into you know giving me a down payment and co-signing because I had no credit. You know, I was an American. And I wasn't allowed to work off campus. I was only allowed to work uh, 20 hours a week on campus. And so while I was doing 18 credit hours, full-time student athlete, after football practice, I would go work at the carpenter shop at BYU's carpenter shop so that I could learn, you know, how to do renovations and stuff like that. And then I talked my buddy's dad into doing this down payment on a house. And I rented it out to all my teammates because I knew they got scholarship checks on the first of every month. And I'd do the repairs and I ended up selling that house and, and splitting the profits with the guy. And then I bought a couple more. And so by the time I had actually even um, signed with the New York Jets in my senior year, I, I had already made over half a million dollars profit in real estate as a student athlete. And keep in mind at this time, I mean, my scholarship check was like $380 a month. I was still driving my 50cc Raz scooter. I, you know, I just was trying to make more money for food. And I realized that this was an opportunity that I could make a ton of money. And at that point, like my first deal, I netted 60K. And that was more money than my parents had made combined in maybe five years. And so at that point, the switch, it, it turned on. It was like, this is the American dream. This is the opportunity. And I've got this figured out. And so... When I went to play football and I realized exactly what you just talked about, Crystal, is that there's so many of these players making obscene amounts of money and we're getting paid every week. You know, every week we go into our locker after a game and we got a check sitting in our locker. And it's like, that's a lot of money. But my first dinner in New York was like, you know, a introduction rookie dinner. And they spent like $68,000 at dinner just on drinks and steak and whatever else. Right. And I was like, holy shit, this is insane. Like, wasting. and this, and this didn't account for all the jewelry everybody was wearing and, you know, the cars and the girls and the entourages and everything else. And so it just became super apparent for me because I came from so little and I valued the dollar so much that like, 
it was just like night and day that this was, this was crazy, the way that they were spending. And then on top of that, I also knew that I wasn't one of them. I wasn't a franchise player. I was like this, you know, undrafted free agent dude that like, you know, the NFL is not for long. Like there's going to be an after career and I got to figure this out. And so I decided that I really just had to leverage the relationships that I had there. And so I was doing business in the locker rooms, doing, doing deals, flipping houses while I was, you know, still playing. And um, a lot of my teammates were like, wags, man, you're always doing these deals. And I'm like, yeah, man, like, I don't get to play like you. I don't get a, I'm not going to get a second contract. Right. So I got to figure this stuff out and I, I do these deals. And then they were like, Hey, I want to do deals too. And these guys had so much money that it was like, if I didn't lose their money, I was the best investment they had like that straight up because they were just the only investment they had. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I, uh, we started doing deals together and I was making them a lot of money because it was during the foreclosure crisis and everybody was jumping out of the business, just like we talked about before this pod is like, you know, everybody was fearful when I got into the, the real estate business and started flipping all these houses during my off seasons, people were like, this is crazy. You know, everybody just got their teeth kicked in. But for me, I got in and I was buying homes at like half of replacement cost. And so it became so easy to make money. It felt, I mean, it felt illegal. And my teammates were like, we want in. And so then I'm making all of us more money. And, and because that fraternity is kind of a, this tight knit, like he's one of us, all of a sudden I gained a very quick uh, reputation of being that guy. And so people were referring me other players and, and other teammates. And pretty soon I had more money at my disposal than I had deal flow and time to run. And so in 2010, when I got actually a, a brand new three-year contract, I decided to retire on my own terms. We had just had our second child and I was making far more money um, in my side hustle than I was playing pro football. So it was, it was the time for me to just move on and step on the gas. What a cool story. I mean, I'm sure there's other players out there who decided to retire early, but this is the first I've heard that you're like, hey, I have another more lucrative business opportunity. I'm going to quit the NFL and go all in on real estate. And you're in many, many other businesses now. Can you kind of just go through uh, the kind of what other businesses you're involved in and what kind of the the purpose is? Because I love that I'm, most of us, our purpose is to make money. And I feel like you have a much deeper purpose at this stage. Absolutely. So um, to answer your question, part of why I transitioned from football at that time was, you know, when we had our second child, I was very aware that the lifestyle of, of a professional athlete wasn't super conducive for a, a strong marriage and a family and all that stuff. Right. And so um, it made a lot of sense to make that transition at that time. And it made it very easy to do so because I was making more money. And I also knew I was leaving a lot on the table actually by playing football. Um, and I knew it was a sustainable, something that I could grow over a long period of time. And so the transition was really simple. I was able to jump into the business and start growing it. But I can tell you this, if you don't have mentorship and you don't have like, like what people have today coming up in the world with YouTube and with masterminds and everything else, I didn't have that. Like my vision of being wealthy or getting rich was like the posters I had on, on my wall when I was a kid, like, oh, you buy a Lambo or a big house. Like, you know, I had this vision board and it was like, if I can buy this stuff, I'm rich. Right. And so I tailored a business to be able to execute that goal. And so I was flipping houses and making lots of money, 
but the only thing that I was better at than making money was spending money. And so I was buying all the cool stuff, the toys, the cars, the everything, trips, private jets, all that stuff. And I realized that like, even though I was making millions of dollars at the time, at the end of the day, I, I wasn't really building anything. And so I started investing in some other companies and I realized like in the tech industry, you know, this guy that wanted a loan for his tech company, he was valuing it at $90 million and they were burning, meaning losing $800,000 a month. And I said, dude, okay, I know I'm kind of new to this private equity world. I just, you know, buy houses for low and sell them for high. It's like dumb linebacker can do it and make money. But like, tell me how the hell your company loses 800 grand a month and you're worth $90 million. And he kind of ran through, you know, that, the way that world worked. And I walked out of that meeting and I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I'm an idiot because my, my business makes 10 million bucks a year profit and I couldn't sell it for anything like zero. And that was the realization for me that like my business is just me. I'm just hustling deals. And if I stop working, it does nothing. It also made me realize that every time I sell a deal, I'm out of a job. I got to go hustle again. And so at that point, it really clicked for me that I had to build something. I had to build a machine. I had to build enterprise value. But at the same time, I also still subscribe to this, this, uh, this theory of, hey, there's so many people that work their asses off and grind through their 20s and 30s, 40s. And then all of a sudden they're wealthy and they get to re retire and enjoy it in their 50s. And I'm like, that sounds lame. I'm going to be tired and my bones, you know, I've had 11 knee surgeries. Like I don't, one, I don't even know if I'll be alive in my fifties. And two, if I am, I'm going to be too tired to do any of the fun shit. So I always have believed like, you got to enjoy it along the way. And so I was in this place where I'm like, how do I do both? I want to build something and have enterprise value, but I also want to enjoy the cash flow today. Right. And that's really when I developed what now I believe is my investment thesis of trying to create businesses that can provide the cash flow so that you can have a lifestyle and enjoy it and create memories and experiences with your family and your friends and, and build those relationships. But also at the exact same time, be building a machine with enterprise value that, that survives you, that's bigger than you. And that's what, that's what I've been able to do. So to talk a little bit about the businesses, obviously I started in real estate as the market dictated I've always just viewed myself as an opportunist. I'm not really a creative or an ideas guy, but um, when I see people doing things, I automatically just think I can do it better than them. And it's narcissistic, whatever you want to call it, I don't care, but it's worked for me. And so I've, I've seen people do things and I thought, man, I can, I can do this and I can do it better. And so as the market dictated, when the distressed market went away, I started becoming a developer and I started developing real estate deals. And because some of the deals weren't as good as when, when the market was distressed, I was kind of like sitting on the sideline, not doing as much because I had made some money, but I was really spoiled because it was so easy before. Right. And so, um, but a lot of the investors that I had worked with, I'd made them a lot of money. And now that the market had come back on their core businesses were really starting to take off. And so I went to some of those guys and I said, Hey, dudes, I've, I've been making you guys money for years. Let me invest in some of your guys' stuff. And a couple of my early investor investments, they really, really took off with those guys and they were super passive. And this was like my first roll of the dice 
in, in private equity in that world. And as good as I thought I was at real estate, now I just did a couple deals where I didn't have to do shit. I just sent a check and I was making even more money. And so now I thought, holy hell, like I thought I was good at real estate. I'm really good at this, right? Okay, <laughs> and, so I double down. The next few deals, I get my ass kicked. I lose everything, all my money, you know, in those deals. And I realize, okay, there's a lot to learn here, right? So I really dive in and, and really try to learn the game on how to underwrite deals, how to mitigate risks, how to structure deal, all that stuff. And so I, I, I took a deep dive into private equity, into venture, and, um, but I was still developing real estate. And the way that I looked at it was, if I could create businesses that would create great cash flow and build enterprise value, and then I was building this real estate portfolio that I wasn't selling, I was just building you know, for, for legacy type uh, reasons, then that would accomplish my goal in my investment thesis. And so that's what I did. And, and I, I started investing in multiple companies, over 30, 30 plus companies. And then a few years ago, I got into the food and beverage industry, um, did some passive investments. They went really well. I love the business because I'm a fat dude at heart and I just like food. And I figured if I could make money and, you know, be around food all the time, that would be a good gig. And so, um, but I realized that one of my partners that I invested in, who was the operator at the time, he wasn't super efficient. He wasn't super business savvy. Um, I was just the money. I was passive, but I realized like, man, if I got in there and did what I know I could do, we could be way more profitable. And so I decided that I just wanted to start buying some of these brands myself and starting some of these brands myself. I built a really great team and that's what I started doing in the last two, two and a half years. Um, now we over, since I started this food, food and beverage um, management company, we now own over a hundred restaurants. We have zero debt in the company. Um, we have 60 plus restaurants under construction development right now. And so it's been a short window of like less than three years, but, you know, we built a few hundred million dollar company very, very quickly because it's, it's a great industry. And that's, that's one thing that I love is because so many people talk about the food and beverage industry being like high risk. You guys have heard it like, oh, restaurants are risky. It's like what they don't understand is that restaurant restaurants are just viewed as risky investments because there's no barriers to entry in the restaurant. Like, if you and your sister are great at cupcakes and you have this recipe and every day your friends, your mom, your sisters, your neighbors come over, they try your cupcakes. They're like, these are the best cupcakes ever. You should start a cupcake shop. You're like, okay, why not? I'm going to start a cupcake shop. And you're in business and you lease a space that hasn't been you know, able to lease for two years. So the guy gives you six months free rent. And before you start, and, and, and not you specifically, but anybody, right? They most likely don't have a lot of business acumen. They just make good cupcakes. And so they open the cupcake shop, but here's the deal. They're out of business before they even started because they don't know how to manage cogs. They don't know how to do supply chain. They don't know how to manage labor. They don't know compliance. They don't, and that, that's just, those are just business principles that a lot of people that are getting into the restaurant business don't understand. And that's what it takes. It doesn't matter how good a chef you are, baker, cook, you have to know how to run a business. And so you've got this really, really high startup rate in restaurants and a really, really high failure rate. But if you segment the industry and you say, now let's look at how many people are business people in the, in the food and beverage. And if you look at those people, they're slaying it. They're printing money. 
Like these, are, these things are cash cows because everybody's always going to eat and drink and have fun and they want the experience. So if you know how to do it right, you know how to run those businesses, they're actually very simple businesses to, to win at. And the thing that I liked about it was it fit my bill. It provided a stable cash flow, an ability to grow and scale a business and create enterprise value. And so I've, I've been stepping on the gas on this, on this company and it's been really, really fun. Honestly, I've, I've gotten to witness and enjoy uh, some of the companies that you are invested in. And I've seen the change too from before you were involved and after, and it's a huge difference and it, it explosive growth and the food's better. Everything's better. So uh, you definitely have a gift for this and um, we're excited to even be able to be a part of some of it as well. So um, you definitely have an eye for it, but you're so right that most of us are just you know, even if you're, if you're a contractor, you're really great at building houses, but you're not really great about managing a budget and employees and all the things that come with it. Uh, a lot of times we're the layman, we're not the, we're, we're the carpenter, we're not the business person, you know? So uh, it sounds like you're coming in and helping some of these people who maybe aren't as strong at that aspect, not only to manage the business, but also to like, you bring kind of like, you call it experiential. I call it kind of like this trendy, fun vibe that people want more of. And uh, you've really, you know how to execute on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah, I always refer to it experience because for me, the recipe actually for success is simple in the sense that if you have a good product that you already know has traction, you create a brand that people like and want to share, and then you create an experience and not only the food, but the packaging and the store, now all of a sudden there's just like this this magical buzz that happens and it's it's infectious and people want to be a part of it not only customers but investors and partners and and employees and and so like we're in our business right now we're like just hitting this j curve where it's like everything's catching fire and we're attracting so much talent and we're attracting a lot of like great people like a lot of our investors are ultra benefit like they benefit our company a ton too because they're super successful and influential people like you guys that, that tell us, Hey, there's a great location just became available and they'll reach out and, you know, or they'll, they'll hook us up with great talent. Like this person's, you know, they're sick of working in this organization, but they've been doing this for years and they refer them to us. And so that synergy happens and it just raises all tides. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, I remember uh, it was the first Avengers. It was like the Saturday and, um, and I remember I walked up and met you. It's funny. I was sitting at a table like, oh, this is Wags. I was like, I don't know who this guy is. And you're like, oh, yeah, I own 100 restaurants. I was like, and I went to Ken. I was like, why do you say something? He's like, ah, you didn't know who the hell he was. I thought it'd be funny to watch you like go, who the hell is this guy? And then um, that Saturday you went on stage and somebody was trying to explain like the food. And then you came on. You're like, let me explain it. And when I heard how you explained it and approached it, you know, we're real estate people. So real estate people are like, ah, F, F everything. Cause it's a safe bet. Like multifamily is very easy, predictable. It's safe. And you're, you know, it's the whole thing. And when I heard you, I remember turning somebody, I was like, that's the best explanation I've heard of like getting into the food beverage. I don't, you just had it down. So I was going to say is I think that you figured out is you still love real estate. You're still really into real estate, but can you kind of talk about like allocation of your company of how much you're in real estate, how much you're into the food and wine space, not food, beverage, wine, all that. I'm not wine, technically just food and beverage, but, and what are the different returns? Because that's what we're talking about too, is, you know, real estate's good for 
equity and taxes and it's there. It's all you can see it. But restaurant, that's what I realized with you guys. These other things, it's like, so on Crystal, like you can put money in, but man, you can make a lot of money and then throw it back over here in the real estate. 100%. So to me, I view the businesses as super, super uh, symbiotic. And I'll tell you, this is kind of just my thesis, but obviously I'm like you guys. I was born into the business as a real estate guy. And that's the way I thought. And, um, and I'll always love real estate. And even today, real estate accounts for probably 40 to 50% of all my time in business. And, and so I would say that my firm's like literally 50% business and then probably 40% food and beverage and 10% random investments and syndications and, you know, other industries and companies. Right. And so, um, the reason that I believe that it's such a good fit is because they're very different. Well, not very different, but they are different risk profiles in terms of the investment. Like with real estate, you have something completely tangible. You have a security there that never goes away, that likely only appreciates. And like you said, you also get the tax benefits of, you know, the, the writing, writing off any of your interest, um, depreciation, depreciation, doing cost segs, all that stuff that really, really helps you on the tax side. Right. But in terms of the, the, in terms of the risk profile, in contrast to food and beverage, now, obviously you don't have the same tangible assets, but if you know somebody that's good in the space and they're good at it, there's very, there's not nearly as much as the perceived risk is what people think. However, you just don't have the security of the, of the assets because you're going to invest to start up a store. It's going to be all done in the TIs. It's going to be all done in, you know, chattel that really, if you, if your business failed, you're going to sell for, you know, pennies on the dollar. So there is that difference in the risk profile, but here's the major difference is let's say you, you know, you're a real estate investor you're just trying to get going or you're doing pretty well. And let's say you got 200 K to invest. Well, what does 200 K get you in real estate? Well, it gets you a down payment at 70% or 80% LTV and you can buy an asset that's worth, I don't know, 800 grand, right? Million bucks. Now a million dollar asset right now, because you guys are in the space, what does a million dollar asset produce you in cash flow? Like just ballparkish. I mean, it's not, it's like, it's, I mean, if you put 200,000 down. In San Diego, we're pretty much at like, what, like a four cap? <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not maybe much. on your money. Let's say a thousand bucks a month. Five, six, just use around number. Six would be amazing right now. Okay. So let's just say, let's just say you're, you're doing great. You don't have expense after everything. Your 200 grand makes you a thousand bucks a month. Okay. That's, that's where this gets really exciting because for that same $200,000, you can invest in a food and beverage company that if it's run properly, these things, some of our stores, and I don't even like to say these numbers because they sound so astronomical and like red flaggish. It scares people. But <laughs> we have, no, honestly, we have stores right now, like multiple, multiple stores in different concepts, even that have produced over a hundred percent annual returns. So my investors have received their entire principal investment back inside of a year. And by the way, they did that in COVID. Like one of our concepts, we have a taco and tequila bar in, in Las Vegas called Mas Por Favor. My investors that all that all participated in that, we were shut down for eight weeks, completely closed when Nevada closed everything down. Then when we reopened for six months, we were only at 50% capacity. 
With all of that, my investors still got 100% of their capital back in the first year. That's wow. insanity. Yeah. You know, so now those guys have zero basis. So the returns are infinite and they're just getting cash checks every month in perpetuity forever. Right. And they own the enterprise value of the business. And so that, that, that is very, very hard to rival in real estate. Like you just can't, I don't care how good you are. It's really difficult to do. And, and we're doing that over and over. Like we have many, many stores and investors that this year they're going to make upwards of 50, 60% IRRs. That's insane. You know, the very low end of what we performa in our brands is typically like low to mid twenties to mid to high thirties. We think that's super conservative. And when you even model those returns against solid real estate returns, they're not really even the same universe. No. And so that's the whole risk versus reward, right? That's asymmetrical risk versus reward. And for me, real estate's a very safe bet. It provides a lot of, a lot of reasons for me to continue to build that portfolio over a long period of time. And you know, I'm gonna get the, I'm, I'm obviously gonna get the appreciation on the asset. I'm gonna get the tax benefits. I'm gonna hedge inflation. There's all these great reasons to always have a solid foundation in real estate. But where it gets really exciting for me is now where I've got all these food and beverage uh, brands, here's where the, the synergies work. The hardest part for a food and beverage company, uh, like a growing brand, is to just get prime locations. Because a prime location is the number one indicator and key to the at least the top line revenue of that store. And so you have to compete with the biggest brands, you know, the In-N-Outs and the Chipotle's and the Chick-fil-A's and stuff to get right these great right locations. Yeah. So, um, and as we learned in the pandemic, if you're a brand that serves um, premium casual or fast casual, drive-throughs are everything right now. Like when everything was shut down, drive-throughs were still open. And even when, they're, when things are not closed down, they account for between 30 and 50% more revenue having a drive-through location. Wow. So for us, we're really out trying to find all these locations, but so is every other brand. They all want the drive-throughs. Well, the, the dream of a real estate developer, if you're a, like a retail developer like I am, is to be able to develop a project, but have a tenant in tow. Meaning that when I, when I build this, I'm not speculating that I'll be able to lease it out. I'm gonna find this, this perfect corner lot. I'm gonna do all the entitlement work. I'm gonna go vertical. I'm going to have these drive-throughs and, and some spaces in here that I want to lease, but I already have a tenant that's willing to sign the 10-year lease on all of them. That's like a no-risk deal. That's like the, a dream for a real estate developer. So what I've created is I'm a real estate developer going out and locking up these prime locations, building these buildings, but I already have seven other brands right here that are looking for the prime locations. They're pre-signing leases on my real estate. So now the banks are giving me the best terms, best LTV, because there's no risk. I already have pre-signed leases with guarantees from these strong brands, right? And for the brands, I'm getting the ideal AAA retail locations. So now those are really, really synergistic. Like I'm getting the best of both worlds. It's a no brainer on both sides and I get both bites of the apple. And so that's where I see like, this gets really, really good over time because now I can start these developments knowing that there's no risk. I've got five brands that are going to sign leases on these things. And now all of a sudden, if I wanted to, which I don't want to, but if I wanted to, the day that I take a CFO, I can turn around and sell those at four and a half caps. Yeah. Those are, yeah. that's double your money type deals. 
Like I got, as a case study, I have one right down the street. I'm into it six, six and a half million dollars. It's 20,000 square feet, two 10,000 square foot retail buildings with end cap drive-throughs. The whole thing's pre-leased before I even poured asphalt in the, in the streets and, and opened the businesses. I could turn around and sell that right now for 14 million bucks, you know? So it doesn't get any better than that from the developer side and from the real estate side, we haven't been able to find any drive-throughs in that city, but I just made two of them for my brands. So now I'm taking those brands AUV from probably in the low millions to over two and a half million dollars. Like it doesn't get any better. That's awesome. I was going to ask you about, um, I think for a lot of us, even at like the mastermind is I've noticed there's people that are like this level, this level, this level. And I've asked like all you guys, like, you know, from kind of like Crystal and I are at a level, we got a lot of stuff going on. You're trying to go to the next level and it's everybody ask. It's like, who's on your team. And I know you're a big thing about like you, everybody's like, you got to hire the best. You got to get the best. So I was going to ask you about scaling Number one is what's some of the thoughts around that and most important. And number two is how do you find or attract the best people? Yeah, great questions. So the first thing I'll say is one, it doesn't work for everybody, but it, it's always worked for me. Bite off more than you can chew and figure out how to chew it. Two, um, patience is one of the most overrated things I've ever heard in my life. Like this whole idea around patience, like, I'm telling you right now, if you guys have five-year goals, sit down together, look at your five-year goals and eliminate all the bullshit in your life that you guys do. And I guarantee you can make your five-year goals one year. You can do it all in one year. At worst case scenario, you can do it in two years. And now all of a sudden you just trim three years of bullshit out of your life because, and you're accomplishing the exact same thing. I mean, you tell your kids to clean the room and tell them they have till Friday and it's Monday. It'll be clean on Friday. Tell them they have till tonight. It'll be clean tonight. That's the way the world works. That's the way people are. So, so set the expectations for yourself to actually accomplish more in scale. In terms of actually attracting and putting the team together to be able to support that, you know, the infrastructure to support that growth and scale. Um, what I've learned is that, you know, everybody's like, oh, go to Indeed and put these good things out and have people that are headhunting all that stuff. Look, the people that are really, really good that you want on your team to be like, just that total all-star to take you to the next level, which by the way, when you're trying to hire, you're trying to hire people better than you, smarter than you, everything better, right? Like I, I don't no no great leader is just like trying to hire people that are smart enough, but you know, don't want to, don't want him to feel unseated, right? Like, so you're always trying to hire the best people. What I've learned is that those people, they don't, they don't not have jobs. Those people are working. They're either business owners or they're working for other great businesses. And, and what most people actually don't realize is some of those really, really high C-level executives for big companies, because they're the type of companies you want to aspire to be. They've been there a long time, but they've maxed out their opportunity. They're at their ceiling. And although they're ultra successful, they're probably even making good money. Those, a lot of those people, man, they want us, they want to go back to the magic of a startup they want to go back to the building phase that was exciting for them. And even more than that, they don't, they hate the ceiling they're at. They see how big of a company they built and they want a piece of the action. And so you can take those people and you can actually get them to take major pay cuts with alignment and opportunity and profit sharing or equity. 
and allow them to vest over time on a performance basis because they have the confidence they can do it. They just did it. So if you can give them this alignment, which for you is a no brainer, like so many CEOs or, or leaders in companies, they're so afraid to give away any equity or any piece of the pie. But look, it's just, it, are you a value-based investor or are you a structure-based investor? For me, I'm value everything. So if I can take, you know, 10% of a 300 inch pizza, or I can have a whole 10 inch pizza by myself, like which one, it's a no brainer, right? You're going to take the, the smaller piece of the bigger pie. And so if you want to create this massive pie that one is better for you and your family, but also like changes the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of other people, then bring those great people in and align them in a performance-based system that allows them to earn equity. And now they have the exact same mission you do. And so that's, that's what I've been able, that's what I've really focused on doing. I haven't run a ton of ads. Obviously my personal brand has been really, really helpful because as you build that personal brand, people are just attracted to it. They want to be part of it. They see the energy. And so we get a lot of our, our talent from that place too. But one thing Joel Marion taught me actually at one of the hundred mil masterminds was he said, you know, when he started his company and they did a hundred million in revenue in their first year, he said, look, I wanted to be the largest, you know, supplement company in the world. And there was, I knew who those, those companies were. And so rather than me trying to figure it all out, I just went on to LinkedIn and typed that company into LinkedIn and it populated all their employees. And I could see who their CFO and their chief marketing officer and their creative and their da, 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 all were. And I just contacted all of them and I said, hey, I'll pay you more and I'll give you a piece of the action. Come over here and start again with me. And he just took a bunch of those people that already built the company that he wants to be. It's like, dude, that's brilliant. And so I started doing that too. I came back to my HR. I took my chief talent officer. I said, hey, from here on out, we're not running ads on Indeed. You're going to go into LinkedIn and you're going to find every single company that does anything similar to what we want to be. And we're going to take all the best people because we have a better offering. We're a funner people. We have a better culture. We have a better rocket ship. People just want to, they just rather work with us, but we got to show them who we are. And that's what we started doing. There is definitely an excitement, I think, for entrepreneurs or, you know, people at the higher level in each of these companies that, they, they're builders. Like they want to build stuff. They want to build a company. They, they love to get in there and roll their sleeves up and, and help you grow and make something great. And then, um, too, it's interesting. Cause I used to have this, this thing too, is like, you know, the way I grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. So I felt like I was always hoarding it and, you know, scared to spend money on marketing, scared to give away interest in a company. But then you realize that when you give people interest, they take ownership. I mean, you can't expect someone to take ownership that doesn't have any, you know, it's just a nine to five or a whatever their schedule is, but they're, if they're invested, they're going to work a lot harder. They're not going to consider it, you know, over time or whatever, like they're, they're here for the long haul. That's such great advice. When you have expectations for other people that you yourself wouldn't be willing to give, then you're, you're a lunatic. I mean, that's the thing is like, you want to attract people like you, like people like us, and so if I want to attract those kind of people, I have to give them an offering that would appeal to a person like me. And that's not going to be like, hey, I'm just going to pay you a little more here and, you know, you'll get an extra day off like that. That doesn't do it for those type of people. I've, I've taken a lot of people away from being their own business owners. And I've said, look, you come over here. Sure, you're technically an employee, 
but really you're a business owner over here too, building this business and you're going to vest ownership and you're going to be an owner in this business or in this brand. And that's a great way to do it because there's a lot of people that are good business owners or good entrepreneurs. They're just on, on the wrong you know, vehicle. Like you guys have seen that. You, what happens is some of these kids that are smart, successful people coming out of college, maybe they only know one industry, their parents ran it, or it was the first thing that somebody brought to them and they jumped in and they did really well in it and it was providing good enough, but it kind of became golden handcuffs for them because they're making good enough money, but not enough to like, you know, it doesn't have this huge ceiling. It's not fulfilling them, but they're afraid to let it go because then what else are they going to do? They're going to have to start from scratch. There's a ton of business owners and entrepreneurs just like that. They want more and they just didn't realize when they started and got neck deep that this wasn't the right vehicle to take them to where they want to go. And so there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of those people are in summer sales. They're knocking doors. They're making three, 500 K a, a, a summer, but they hate it. They don't want to be doing that shit when they're 40 and 50 years old. Those are the types of people that you can take. And if you align them right, they're going to help you explode companies. And there's lots of those kinds of people. I love that. What's um, kind of wrapping up. What's uh, what keeps you up at night? Right now. Losing other people's money. It's the only thing that keeps me up at night. People, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, when you do as many deals as I've done, transactions, hundreds, if not thousands, um, some deals go great. Most deals go great. Some deals go bad. And I've lost people's money. And I remember the first, one of the first large investors that I took into my firm like eight years ago, he sat down, I gave him my pitch. And at the end of the pitch, he looked me in the eye and he kind of, he's an older guy and he put his hand on my knee. He reached out and put his hand on my knee. And he said, Aaron, just, just look at me and tell me that you're going to treat this money like it's your money. And I looked back at him and before I opened my mouth, I thought about it for a second. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm going to treat it like it's your money because I'm, I have a pretty high risk tolerance. I can go to Vegas and play blackjack. I can throw money at Bitcoin and hope it goes to the moon. I can do all that shit because it's mine and nobody gave it to me and I know how to make it and I'm okay with starting from zero and that's why I don't really have any fear and I'm, I'm, I'm okay to always try new things. But the only thing in 15 years that's kept me up at night that's really stressed me out is losing other people's money. And so I looked them back in the eye and I said, no, man. I'm going to treat it like it's your money. And that's the only thing that, that, and that's the way you want me to treat it. Cause that's, that's what keeps me up at night. So good question, man. No, I was just curious with you cause you have a lot going on. So I, I like that answer. That's good. That's what, that. that's why a crystal that'd be you. you that's the biggest on. thing that stresses me out. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I, I almost don't want it other people's money. You know, I'm like, yeah, you keep it. Cause I, like I said, it's my, my money is mine to lose. People ask me that all the time. They're like, well, Wags, why do you still keep on bringing investors in? Because especially for me, like one, I could slow my growth down a little bit. I could just bankroll all my growth myself and not have to deal with investors, not have that stress that I put on myself. Um, but the answer to that and the reason that I don't and I continue to take investors and other people's money is simply because uh, uh, there's a couple of reasons. First, I've always been a team guy. When I first started in real estate and I was flipping houses, um, I was doing everything on my own. I was just using like after, you know, investors, I, I started just doing with my own cash and 
Um, I was getting hard money loans and I'd make, make these big paydays. And I remember one in, in very specifically in particular, there's a house that I flipped in Utah here and I got the, I got the HUD and I netted over $1 million on one deal. And I was 26 years old. I always had this goal. I wanted to be a millionaire before I was 30. I was 26 years old. I got a, a check for over a million dollars. And I was like, I did it. Like I'm a millionaire at 26, not on paper. Like I got the money right here. And I was sitting in my office and I was looking around and there was nobody to celebrate with. It was like, I'm high-fiving myself, you know, like my wife was happy for me, but like, that was it. And I realized at that point, like, it's just not as fun. Like it's fun to make money, but it's fun to make lots of people money. It's funner. Like at that point I was making tons of money. Most of my other friends, 26, they weren't, they were in school, had debt, working crappy jobs. So now I'm like, dude, let's go to Vegas. Like, let's go party. Let's go do all this stuff. They're like, bro, we can't stay at the freaking Cosmo. We don't have the money for this. I'll pay for it. I'll pay for everything. You know, I remember like literally I planned a trip with my five closest high school friends I hadn't seen in probably like 15 years. I told them all, just get to Vegas somehow. I'll pay for everything. And a couple of them called me and they were like super embarrassed because, you know, one of them was a painter and he wasn't making much money. And he was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I can't really afford this. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I'll pay for everything. He just didn't even want to come. He felt uncomfortable. Right. And then like another one, like, you know, it wasn't really in the budget, but he was kind of like prideful, didn't want me to have to pay for it. And so at that point, I also had this realization that like, dude, you can make a bunch of money, but if you're, if you're not helping or if you're not around people and helping them make money and leveling up with you, then how fun is it to just be rich by yourself? That sucks. It's not, and so yeah. I, I, I've always heard people, and I said this at the Avengers, but I've always heard people, not my parents didn't say this, but I've heard a lot of other people like, hey, don't do business with family. Don't do business with friends. I think that's absolutely nuts. Like, think about this. And I used the same example last time, but if you knew that Bitcoin was going to be worth 40 or 50 or $60,000 a coin 10 years ago, if you knew it, like you had a crystal ball and you knew it, would you go tell random ass strangers and banks to go buy Bitcoin? Or would you go tell your friends and family to buy Bitcoin? Tell your friends. Well, of course you go tell your friends and family because you care about them. You want them to be happy. You want them to make money. But why all of a sudden when it comes to business, are people taking the exact opposite approach? They're saying, well, don't do business with the friends and family. Well, the only reason that that exists is because the people that are saying that are one of two things. One, they don't have the confidence in themselves and or the deal or competence to be able to perform so that their friends and family are winning with them. They're afraid that they could lose all their money, right? Or two, they're shysty ass dudes that just wanna take advantage and rip off like random ass people because it won't affect their personal life. Well, people always say like, oh, don't take it personal, it's business. Dude, I take business super personal because my whole life, my whole personal life is mostly with the people that I do business with. And so they're one and the same. And if I'm going to win for somebody, I'd sure as hell rather it be like my friends and my family than some random ass people. Because one, I care about the people. I want to take them with me. But two, I want to freaking party after two. And I want them to have the money to do it and enjoy it. You know, I want them to be able to afford to come to Cabo and stay in a villa or do whatever. Like, and so, you know, 
Maybe that's not the right path for everybody, but for me, that's why I do it. That's why I want to make money with friends and family. That's why I have the confidence that I know how to perform for them. And so I don't shy away from that at all. I love that. Yeah. I think uh, you have a lot of confidence in what you do. And I think it's very admirable though, that you like, you, you have a big heart, you want to help people and you want to take them along the ride. I think that's amazing. Um, we always ask one final question before that. Where's the best place people can find you, learn more about you, maybe invest with you? Um, I'm building out new websites right now. Um, so right now, the best place to connect with me is actually just on Instagram. It's Aaron Wags, A-A-R-O-N-W-A-G-S. So at Aaron Wags. Just follow me there. Um, I run the account personally, so I'll, I'll see you guys' comments and DMs, and you can reach out. I, I often share opportunities there that people can get involved with. Also, um, you can go to axiapartners.com. That's our real estate fund. So you can go there and send us an email if you're interested in looking at the opportunities in our, our next fund that launches here in 60 days. And lastly, if you want to get to know us on a personal level, much like how we got to know each other, Take a look at avengersmastermind.com. If you join there, obviously it's it's built for real estate people, but about more than half the membership are probably just thriving business owners and entrepreneurs that want to network and want to learn more about real estate and learn more about other investment deals. And so that's a great place to come um, meet a lot of people like us. And uh, it's a great experience. So check that out too. And we'd love to have you there. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so we always ask people, what's your definition of generational wealth? Well, I think for me, I mean, I have seven kids, right? So I think about this actually. <laughs> yeah. And generally, it's funny to me because like, you know, there's two aspects. The generational wealth is, hey, can I create enterprise value or passive cash flow or assets that will continue to pay multi-generations, right? The The problem that I have with that, like, Yes, I know I can do that. Yes, I am doing that. And yes, it will likely happen. But I have this back and forth tug of war where I don't really want to give my kids everything that I've earned, earning in life. And so I don't, I don't really know how I'm going to manage that at this point. It's a discussion me and my wife often have because I don't want my kids to experience, you know, the life that I experienced and having to figure everything else out and not feeling safe and and, but at the same time, those experiences gave me and created a, a resourcefulness that, that otherwise is very, very difficult to, to get. And so for me, it's a balance of trying to teach my kids when I talk about, when you talk about generational wealth, like wealth, you can say that's money, you can say it's cash flow, you can say it's assets, but real wealth is, is having it inside you because when people ask me, Aaron, how, how are you taking on so many new projects or how do you deal with risk? Well, pe only people that aren't confident that they could start again tomorrow and do the same thing over, those are the ones that are afraid of, of risk. Like I'm never afraid of risk because nobody gave me anything. I could do it tomorrow. You could wipe me clean, send me to a different state, no credit cards, no anything. And I can guarantee you, I'll make you $100,000 in the first 30 days and that'll compound and I'll grow it again. And so for me, I just think like, I need to teach my children and the people around me, my friends, my employees, I need to teach them those skills, that confidence. And if I can pass that on, that's real generational wealth. Cause it really doesn't matter what happens in the markets. Doesn't have, it doesn't matter what the industry is. 
they are going to have the skill sets and the confidence to be able to just thrive in anything. And so that's, that's what I'm really meticulously trying to create a plan that I can give that to my children and the people I care about. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on. Um, I think, uh, like you said, Avengers has been awesome. I never had a mastermind. So I think, uh, I was telling crystal, you know, the first time's a little bit like get to know the second time, you know, you're kind of getting there and I feel like a lot of us are bonding, but I think a lot of people are there to meet people, but also some people just make money and they want to invest it. And some people want to, you'd invest in them, but congrats on all your success. Um, I didn't really know the story about you, uh, driving on a moped, um, to get to the U S so that was awesome. But, um, congrats. And, uh, you know, we're definitely, um, been a part of some of the stuff you're doing. So thanks for your time. It's been rad. Thanks for you guys' support. And, you know, I appreciate you guys. I, I don't take it lightly, even though there's a lot of people and sometimes I don't get to go deep with them. I do appreciate you guys individually and, and thanks for the support and thanks for having me on this. And I'm excited to get to know you guys better at the next. Awesome. Thanks, All right, brother. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.